Yes, and she couldn't come yesterday, but she'll be here sometime today. And not only that, uh, he just told me that today, the 8th of the month, that he came into AA. Uh, how long ago? I'll let him tell you a story. Let him tell his story. Uh, Roger? Thank you very much. Thank you, Marge. <laughs> My name is Roger. I'm an alcoholic. I'm a pillhead. I'm a narcotic addict. And a few other things. By God's grace, through the 12 steps of the AA program, a lot of help from my sponsor and many other cherished good folks in AA. I haven't found it necessary to take a drink or to take a pill or to use narcotics in any form in four years and five months today. For this, I'm I'm very very grateful. I, I said I hadn't found it necessary. I heard an old boy say one time that he'd been necessary a time or two. He just hadn't done it. I, <laughs> Listen, with all you people sitting out there, you know, it's kind of, it'd be nice a pill to help me right now. <laughs> I've heard so much about Blackstone. I've been to our own retreat there in Texas, Brownwood, and I've loved every second of the years that I've been there, and I've heard so much about Blackstone that it's a real privilege and a real honor for me to be here. I feel certainly inadequate to be to be at a, a such a uh what is it, ostentious? Obstentious? That's not right. <laughs> you got you got to forgive me, I'm from Texas. You know, I, I don't know all them big words. I'm kinda like the old boy, you know, I I wonder I wonder how in the world I got to a place like this. There was an old boy came in late or early from work one afternoon. He got off of work. They laid him off or something. He came in early and he walked in the bedroom and there laid his wife. She didn't have a stitch of clothes on. Middle of the day, laying up in the bed. I guess he thought something was for what kind of a deal is this or something. Anyway, he says, what in the world are you doing in here in the bedroom without any clothes on in the middle of the day? She says, well, it's such a hot day that I thought I'd just, you know, strip off and lay down here under the air conditioner and, and cool off. He says, oh, well, says, uh, that sounds like a good idea. I said, I believe I'll just join you. So he took his clothes off and he put them on a hanger. You know, he went to the closet and he opened the door and there stood an old boy. He didn't have any clothes on either. He says, what in the world are you doing here in my house without any clothes on? This old boy started standing around. He, he finally says, well, everybody's got to be somewhere, ain't they? So, <laughs> I had to be somewhere this morning. That's about as good an excuse as I can give. You know, that the first AA meeting I went to didn't have that blue haze hanging over it. Ain't no smoking loud in here. Uh, somebody told me somebody set the church on fire. I believe it was 
This lady back here, somebody set church on fire and they stopped smoking. Must have been like, I heard, I heard a deal, uh, these people that, uh, heard about AA coming down here, they, they, they'd probably heard this joke. You know how, uh, the attitude we sometimes get in the latter throes of alcoholism, we get to where we don't much care. See this flop house caught on fire. And a bunch of these old wine holes and rats was running out of the holes in the windows, you know. So the firemen got there and there were two or three old dudes there, you know, they just still sleeping. They went in there and they grabbed one of them up, yoked him up in front of him. Said, say, boy, says, uh, you know anything about how this fire got started? He says, hell no, it was burning when I went to bed. You know? <laughs> That's why they won't let you smoke in here. <laughs> There's a fella here that I love very dearly from my home state, Texas. I won't break his anonymity, but he's a grizzled old reprobate, you know. You you ain't gonna you can't tell him by looking at him. He says that uh he tells he told me this uh, on himself this morning. You know, out there in Texas we used to have some bears, but we killed them all out. And and you know how it used to be, the the people tell the little kids, you know, if you don't be good you know, a bear's gonna get you or Santa Claus ain't coming or something. Well, this fella got so bad out there. <laughs> he was such a terrible drunk and such a sorry old thing. He said the women out there used to tell the little kids, if you don't be good, Ralph's gonna get you. <laughs> <laughs> That's getting pretty bad, I guarantee you. You know, I said I was a drug addict and, and I am. Uh, there's been some changes in my life. A good many. Uh, you know, they brought me down here, and the first thing they did put me in the bishop's room. And you imagine that dope fiend in there in that bishop's room? Man. <laughs> and the drug cabinet's in there. Yeah, the drug cabinet's in there with all them analgesics and them painkillers, you know, and all that kind of stuff. When I used to be, you know, I'd go visit somebody. I'd always go to the bathroom. I'd check the drug cabinet down. You know, if it had anything in there that looked like it might do something, I'd take it. Man, I'd have took Liddy Peekham if I thought it done any good. Now, I'm gonna tell one more, and then I'm gonna, then I'm gonna hush. Uh, this, this, this is kind of a preaching convention. Of course, I've been accused of preaching sometimes. I heard an old joke said, uh, out in East Texas, I don't know if any of y'all ever really know what I mean by an old East Texas camp meeting, you know. I expect probably, you know, you got, they had this meeting going on, and they, these two old ladies sitting right down on the front row, you know, and they, they have them dip snuff, you know. They dip snuff back in Texas. I don't know why y'all do that out here or not. You ladies. <laughs> anyway, this old lady was sitting there, and this Baptist preacher, this evangelist preacher boy, he was getting into his message, you know. He says, I'll tell you, brothers and sisters, if you drank whiskey, you'll surely go to hell. This old lady says, Amen, brother. She says, Boy, that's preaching. She says, Amen, hallelujah. He says, I'll tell you one other thing. He says, if you smoke cigarettes and cigars, you'll surely go to hell. She says, oh boy, that's preaching. She says, amen, brother, amen, hallelujah. He says, and I'll tell you one more thing. <laughs> he says, if you, if you chew tobacco and dip snuff, you'll surely go to hell. She looked over at her sister and said, now nah, he's done quit preaching and gone to meddling. <laughs> <laughs> Ha, ha, ha.
Tom, you and Dutch ever had that happen? <laughs> well, I'm going to meddle with you a little today, I think. I started drinking when I was a sophomore in college. I was a country boy. I didn't drink. I didn't smoke cigarettes. I didn't drink coffee. Didn't go with girls. You know, rode horses. Went swimming naked down in the creek. You know, uh, I didn't do none of them bad things. They didn't have no fun when I was a boy. <laughs> One of them clean living country boys. I got to college and uh, had me a new convertible. My mother bought me a new convertible to go to college in. We'd go across the river. I couldn't dance. We'd go across the river, you know. Uh, I don't know about over here. Everywhere I was in Texas, every time I went to school, you had to go across the river to get drunk. Y'all have to go across the river to get drunk over here? We'd go over there in these old honky-tonks, you know, and these other kids were drinking beer and all, and so I, I started drinking beer. And after about two or three cans of beer, then I could dance. You know, I, these little gals always want to teach you how to dance and all this and that. I never would get up, even try. But I got to where I could dance. I got to where I could talk to the girls. I started smoking. This is when I was a sophomore in college. Well, I, I finished that year there, and then I went over to A&M. That's Texas A&M. And my drinking continued to get worse. I, we had a lot of beer busts over at A&M. I don't know. Uh, there's a lot of Aggie jokes going around in Texas. I don't know whether you hear them down here or not. But the thing that prompts those things is the attitude that Texas Aggies have. You know, if you can cuss the loudest, tell the dirtiest jokes, jump the highest, run the fastest, you know, drive your car the fastest, drink the most, all that sort of thing, you was a good Aggie. Well, I was a good one, you know. I, I could do all them things, and I, uh, especially the beer drinking. This continued on until I was a, a junior in the School of Veterinary Medicine. In the meantime, I'd gotten married for the first time, and uh, this was an unhappy experience for me. Uh, and it got worse. Uh, I, I came in drunk one night, and I was, you know, they say circumstances, and the people you're married to and all this don't, don't have anything to do with it, but, uh, I'd argued with you back then. I, I came in one night drunk, and, oh, I got, I'd get sick when I drank, man, I'd, I'd get sick. And we had a little old, uh, Quonset hut, and the bed was built in, you know, and it wasn't about that far from the wall. And I laid across the bed, and you know how you'll do, uh, the room will go to spinning, and, and I vomited off in between the wall and that bed, and then fell off in it, and I was drunk, and I was wedged down in there, I couldn't get out, and she wouldn't help me out, you know. <laughs> These crazy women, uh, I don't know whether she had anything to do with it, no, she didn't, certainly she didn't. She was a good girl. I was very immature and very bitter about it, and of course... I was in the early stages of alcoholism and didn't realize it. I was getting drunk and going out all two or three times a week. I continued on with my studies. I was making my grades and all. When I was a junior in school, I I got sick. I had a bad case of appendicitis. They operated on me for that. And then I got a big old abscess. And they operated on me for that. I was in the hospital two or three months off and on. And they kept me on narcotics uh Pardon me, one called Demerol. My, uh, my MD was a friend of mine. He was a hometown buddy of mine. And he'd give me a little handful of two cc ampules of Demerol when I'd, I'd try to leave the hospital and go back up to A&M take final exams. It was doing the final exams. He'd give me, you know, I was hurting and everything. He'd tell me to take it if I needed it. Of course, I needed it. I, 
I, I'd take it all. Anyway, I stayed on this stuff about two or three months, and, and I became addicted. I didn't know it, really. Uh, I knew I'd been hooked on it. Actually, I think uh, I had a physiological dependency, but I wasn't emotionally habituated. We talk about the uh, crossing that line, that invisible line in AA. You know, up until the time you cross that line, uh, you're not supposed to be. Now, I guess I was a social dope fiend. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have to have a shot of dope to make today. I wasn't dependent on it. I went on back to A&M and I finished as a veterinarian. Finished in the School of Veterinary Medicine. I came on back to Houston, went into practice. I was practicing in the daytime and as soon as I could, I'd leave my hospital. I'd go to a nightclub or an old honky-tonk somewhere and start drinking beer. I used to think that I had a weakness for these old honky-tonks. When I was at A&M, you know, I'd always go to an old honky-tonk, and and I had a weakness for them, and I did. And uh, I just loved to get in them old places. You know, that old blue smoke, Kenny, and uh, that old country hillbilly music, you know, and I'd eat them pills and drink that beer and run them little old dirty-legged women around that dance floor. <laughs> I was having fun, you <laughs> I'd come in the next morning, and I was expected to be Dr. Cadwalder. You know, they, uh, I had a practice over in a real plush part of that town, you know, and them ladies would bring them little old fuzzy poodles in there, and I'd be all hung over. <laughs> Couldn't see that dog. Stick my, stick my hand down there, and that booger bite me, you know, and I'd bat him off the table. And I was about to go out of business, so I, so I got me a cure. I started taking me a little shot of dope, you know, and a little vitamin pills, and I'd cure my hangover. And then, you know, uh, I could either dodge him or if he happened to get me, I didn't much care. <laughs> I was taking pills for everything. You know, uh, if I had a headache, I'd take, you know, codeine or something. If I had... If I needed to go to sleep, I'd take a barbiturate. If I needed to wake up, I'd take a pep pill or an amphetamine. If I needed to be tranquil, I'd take a tranquilizer, you know. If I had loose bowel, they call that scours. And if I had the scours, you know, I had some kind of dope to cure everything. <laughs> Get you up, lay you down, turn you around, you know. John, old John down there, he knows what I'm talking about. I didn't know that I was the kind of fellow that was going to be a dope fiend or an alcoholic. It never occurred to me that, that it could happen to me. I never thought about it. I thought I was a pretty good fellow. You know, uh, there I was. I had a doctor in front of my name. I was making more money than I'd ever seen before in my life. I was meeting all kinds of gals with mink stoles and blonde hair, you know, and all this kind of business. And I just thought I was getting along fine. I didn't have any idea that I was suffering from a threefold illness. I didn't realize that I had this physical problem that wouldn't allow me to use any of the brain deadeners. I didn't realize that I had this terrible emotional, emotional crippling situation going on in me. <laughs> I was kind of, I was kind of like an old boy. I heard he said he, he, he didn't know until he took his fourth and fifth step. He was the kind of dude you ought not associate with. Well, I, I, 
I was kind of that way. I thought I was a pretty good fella. Certainly no, no God in my life at all. I had long since decided that if there was a God, uh, uh, you know, that I'd heard about one and he was an old fella and he was petulant and he was jealous and he was, he represented authority and, and he, he had ten things that by golly you better do. Or he had a bad place that you didn't want to go to one of these days, and he'd see to it you got there, uh, and, and all this sort of thing. Uh, there were several other things that I didn't, uh, understand exactly about God. In fact, I didn't understand anything about him. You know, there was Ouija boards and people who stuck needles and little black dogs and other people went to church. You know, it was all about the same thing. I thought that I heard this phrase, uh, religion is the opiate of the masses, and boy, I like that. You know, I was an intellectual. I was one of these smart fellows. Uh, anybody as smart as I was, you know, it's kind of like Santa Claus. Uh, after I got in so much trouble, I used to wish that I could believe in a God. Uh, I used to think that, it, you know, if you did believe in him, if you hadn't been educated, and if you wasn't an intellect, you know, if you wasn't smart, that, uh, like, it's like somebody telling you about Santa Claus. You know, I figured that, uh, as long as you, as long as you thought there was, there'd be a bicycle under that Christmas tree, you know, and this sort of thing. Once you found out, well, that was it. Well, this is kind of the way I felt about religion. And evolution and all this, this stuff went into it, my medical training. And anyway, uh, as a result of all this, I didn't have anything of God in my life. Didn't occur to me. Didn't even think about it. Now, I want to say a few things about the pills. I told you I was going to meddle in somebody's business here. I'm going to meddle in somebody's business. Not any of y'all, I'm sure. But you may run into one one of these days that uh, you need to talk to about pills and dope. First place, as far as I'm concerned, it doesn't make any difference which of these chemicals that anybody is using insofar as their problem or AA's ability to deal with the problem. I think that, you know, beer, wine, vodka, whiskey, you know, Miller's High Life, and Lone Star, and all the rest of these things, blue pills, red pills, yellow pills, uh, morphine, heroin, all of it, I think it's, uh, I think it's all the same thing insofar as AA's ability to deal with it. Our big book teaches us that, that we deal with the underlying problem, the obsession to take that first one. I think this is true. I think that if a fella comes into AA and he quits drinking whiskey and he starts taking pills, I don't think he's soaked. I think he just, same, you know, the big book again tells us we've tried many ways. We go from whiskey to brandy. We go from this to that. We go from this to that. I think it's the same thing. If we go from alcohol to one of the other chemicals, I think we're just changing our habits. I don't think we help ourselves at all. One of the reasons that I think it's so detrimental in AA is that I think there's a certain part of our brain that's causing our trouble. I'll say it like this. You know, there's not any of us that, uh, Dutch said it like, there's not any of us drink whiskey or take these pills or use dope to the point that we have because we want to or because we're stupid or anything like that. We're taking it because we have to. The reason we have to is because that somewhere in the recesses of our brain or our souls, it's such a painful, anguished way of life that we can't stand it on dead center. We can't stand it without some sort of chemical insulation. And we've learned uh, out of habit 
and usually we're not aware of this, but we've learned that if we're experiencing this mental pain or anguish or, or any of these things, that a drink or a pill will take it away from you. Change the way you feel. Change the feeling. Uh, you know, uh, uh, when you're feeling bad, you want to feel good, and when you're feeling good, you want to feel better. So we drink to change the way, the way we feel. I'm convinced of this. Of course, AA has, a, has another way of dealing with these bad feelings, and it's effective. And many, many thousands of people have found a way to deal with these painful attitudes and emotions without the use of, of chemicals. Now, if there is a part of my brain that, that, that's bothering me, hurting, then this is the very part of my brain that AA needs to deal with. It needs to deal with a sick portion of my personality. You know, if you got a toe with an abscess on it, you don't come along and stick a knife up here on your finger somewhere. You stick a knife down there in the toe and you let the pus out of the part that's, 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 that's troubling you. So if we've got some painful attitudes, some painful personality traits, some painful soul sickness, I like that word, soul sickness. If we have this sort of thing that we're trying to live with and we're using chemicals to insulate us from this pain, and AA comes along and deals with this situation, uh, then it's dealing with that particular part of our brain. Now, if we're using a drug or a chemical instead of AA to deal with this situation, then it is, then it's having its effect on the part of our brain or our soul that's causing us the trouble. And you know, this is the part that, that we find our God consciousness with. It's the very, the first part of our brains to be anesthetized by any of these chemicals is the are the higher centers, the very subtle ones, the one that we know right from wrong, the part of us that makes us different from an animal. Our guilt, our conscience, and our God consciousness, and our, our sense of the very the very refined, delicate sense of, of right and wrong and this sort of thing. These are the first ones that go out and we become more like animals. These are the first ones that go out even with a small amount of drugs. And so, when AA tries to deal with this part of our brain, the part that's giving us the trouble, it can't get through. Uh, I've got a, I've got a textbook at home on, on horses, uh, and jackasses. It's, you know, uh, and it says in there, now, now we can accept this for a horse, it says, now if you're going out to treat horses, and one of them is fractious, and he doesn't want you to do, he won't do like you want him to, you know, he says, don't give him a tranquilizer because it's all right. But if you do, all the work that you do on that animal will be to no avail insofar as his training is concerned because there will be no lasting impression left. You know, I accepted that uh, just like that, and most anybody would. But uh, when we are in the throes of this disease, and I think it's part of the illness, we think that we can take a pill and we can get part of our brain anesthetized, and then we can come to AA and find some lasting impressions, some mental and emotional growth. I, don't, I just think it's mechanical. I just don't think it can happen. It's just as simple as eating beefsteak and growing muscle. Uh, I think that the only way we ever grow emotionally is through experience. I think we have to be free of the brain anesthetic before we can have these emotional experiences that we have in AA. AA is a therapeutic thing. And it leads us towards a God consciousness. And if this particular part of our brain is anesthetized, I don't think that these, these situations can occur. 
for us. So uh, there's another reason that I like to talk about pills, and well, there's several reasons. Of course, I like to fight my case. You know, here I am, dope in AA. I, I got to be welcome. You know, it saved my life. If I if I couldn't be here, I'd be dead or in the penitentiary or something. Other thing, uh, these pills are getting so easy to get. You know, about all you really got to do is go to the doctor and tell him you can't sleep or, or you know, you, your nerves are bad. We got bad nerves, you know. Uh, anybody in here ever been nervous? You know, uh, man, my nerves are bad. You go to the doctor and tell him you got bad nerves, or you can't sleep, or you can't do this, or you can't do that, and, and you go to four or five doctors and they give you a double handful of pills. And they don't know any better. They really don't. They think they're helping. They think they're helping. And more and more and more, especially with the ladies. Now, I'm not meddling again, you know, but uh, there's more ladies anymore, housewives, that are using these old pills. They get up with a Benny, you know, and uh, along about 10 o'clock, they have their coffee break with a Benny, and, you know, and, and they go right on through the day, and then about uh, the husband do home about 5 o'clock, and they take about three tranquilizers, you know, and then by the time they get to the end of the day, they're nervous and keyed up and, and, and wide awake and all these other things that they can't sleep, so they got to take something to put them to sleep. Next morning, they can't wake up and got to take something to wake them up. So on and so forth, particularly if they're drinking, and, and, and these are the people we're talking about. More and more, we're going to see people coming into AA that have got not only problems with alcohol, but problems with pills. I think it's very important that AA members realize that you've got something to share with these people. Your experience, your strength, and your hope. This is the thing that we try to offer people when they come in. And the fact that they're using a different chemical from the one you used to use to get your head tore up doesn't make any difference. It really doesn't. So there I was, and uh, I was taking these pills, and I, I was taking drugs. And, and, you know, some of them have side effects. Like I say, if you take barbiturates, you got to have something to wake you up the next morning and so on. And I got started using morphine. And... uh It'd do the same job that all these other things would do, and I didn't have a lot of these old horrible side effects. So after a year or so, I I, I became completely addicted to, to morphine sulfate. I was telling Ellen, got it right. I was telling Ellen a while ago that uh I used to order morphine by the 30cc vial. It had a quarter of a grain per cc in there, and I used to order it wholesale at the beginning of the month. I'd order enough so that I'd have two vials of this stuff for each 24-hour period. That's I didn't always take that much, but very often I did, somewhere between 30 and 60 quarters of morphine. Now, that's that's lots of dope. I used to take it two grains at a crack, Dr. John. <laughs> and uh, uh, this was a terrible situation. And I, I realized that I was having trouble, and it scared me a little bit. And I tapered myself and got off the first time, right back on it. Got off again, right back on it. Finally, I started going to drying out hospitals. I went to hypnotists. I went to psychiatrists. I went to psychologists. I did everything in the world that anybody could possibly do to try to get off of this stuff on, under their own scene. As soon as I'd get out of one of these hospitals, I'd, I'd go right back into practice. I had no awareness of who I was. I had no awareness of what my problem was. I just thought I had a nasty old habit. And that really, all I really needed was some doctor to, you know, get me physically able not to be hurting and all this business. And I could go on back to practice and I'd be all right. 
Of course, I never was. I had nothing to fill the gap. I'd get right back on it. Finally, I went to the Federal Narcotics Hospital in Fort Worth. You've probably heard a good deal about the one in Lexington, Kentucky. Fort Worth, the very same thing. Uh, they call it a hospital. Dr. John knows what it is. It's a federal penitentiary with a kick ward there in Fort Worth. You go there and you're, you're a volunteer, you know, but you, man, them jobs, they, they took me in there. Has anybody ever washed any pots and pans for a penitentiary bunch of a convict? Listen, they had a pile of pots and pans as big as this thing and they say, here you are, son. This is your job. Uh, I couldn't leave because I knew I'd get back on dope. Uh, by this time I, I knew I was, I was a bad sick fella. By this time I'd heard the, uh, statistics, 2% recovery, all this sort of thing. I'd begun to feel hopeless. I'd begun to feel helpless. My practice was gone. Uh, my wife had left me and taken my kids. My house was gone. They canceled my insurance policy. My bird dog ran off. Somebody stole my shotgun, you know. And <laughs> I had one little old piece of guitar one time. That's all I'd salvage. It was about that long, worth about three dollars. I had that and one little old gal. <laughs> she, I don't know where she came from or anything. There she was. And I had just a little bit of dope. And, uh, that gal wasn't doing like I wanted her to at all. And I, you know, was all hopped up and I took a wild swing at her and missed her. She ran out the door when I missed her. I stepped in that guitar and tore it up. She ran out the door with all my dope. That's the night I hit bottom. It, it was all gone. <laughs> I went through all the, the physical convulsions, all the terrible physical ordeal that you see portrayed and some of you have experienced it, it's the same as alcoholism. It just happens quicker. Uh, it's just more viciously addicting. It's the same thing. You just got to kick one of them old terrible habits and I kicked a, a bunch of them. The mental pain was the worst. The terrible feeling of desolation and hopelessness and helplessness. I thought I was going to have to be a dope fiend the rest of my life and I couldn't stand it. By this time I was just Completely whipped. I could say my wife had left me. I I went down to my little hotel this. It's pretty terrible. I went down to my little hospital one night. Broke in my, my ex-partner's hospital. I put some instruments on sterilized. I was going to amputate my hands. I thought if I couldn't manipulate these syringes around that I wouldn't have to be a dope fiend the rest of my life. I don't know. I figured out, you know, that I could... uh manipulate them around with my shoulders and so forth and probably get some pills down or something and then I'd be a dope fiend without any hands and that might be that might be worse than one with hands and so I didn't cut my hands off. Now I would have though because by this time I had a I had a tremendous willingness and a great desire not to be the kind of fellow I was. And apparently I wasn't gonna be able to do anything about it. Another time I'd been I'd been in the hospital, stayed up there six months. Came out, didn't take any dope, went and started drinking whiskey. I got drunk every night, every night of the world for about eight months. Got to where I was drinking a quarter, a hundred fruit smearing off every night. Boy, now that's seeking oblivion. I used to be so afraid that I was going to get me a dope habit, that I'd go take a shot of dope to keep from worrying about it. Now that's insanity. That's right. I'd get to thinking, boy, one of these days I'm going to be in the penitentiary. 
one of these days I'm going to be dead, or one of these days I'm going to be this or that, and I'd be so tore up that I'd go take, that's the only way I knew to deal with this mental thing. And I'd have to do it. Now that's insanity. One night or one day, I decided that I couldn't get off of it. There wasn't any other way for me that I was going to be a part of that 98% that never did get off of it. I'm not sure these figures are correct. I doubt it anymore. I'm sure they're not. I think there's, there's a pretty good recovery rate anymore in AA. But I didn't think I was one of them, and I was going to kill myself. Boy, and I loaded up two syringes full of this old sleeping medicine you, you know, you could put animals to sleep with. And I took a great big massive overdose. Took one syringe in the hip and the other one in the, in the vein. And I was trying to kill myself. There wasn't anybody around, you know, I wasn't, I didn't call anybody, I didn't have time, man. As soon as it hit me, I was out. It wasn't one of these flag-waving deals, I'm trying to kill myself or anything like that. I really wanted to die because I, I couldn't stand it the way I was. I, I took enough stuff to kill a horse. Wasn't enough to kill a jackass, and jackasses are tough. <laughs> I woke up sometime later, I don't know how long later, I was standing in the bathroom one time, and I'd run out of veins. I didn't have any veins anywhere. And for some reason or another, I didn't, I didn't have anything but a big old horse syringe. About that long, 50, 50cc syringe, and I had a 16-gauge three-inch needle. all I had. And I didn't have any veins left that I'd get one. It's about the size of a toothpick. And this big old syringe about that long, you know. And I was in bad shape. My, my wife was still with me then. So this is the morning she left. I had a belt around my neck. And I was naked. I don't know why I was naked. But I had myself locked up in the bathroom. And I had this syringe full of stuff. And I had the jerks. You know, John. I had the jerks. And I, I couldn't. But I'd hit that jugular vein with that old thing. And then I'd jerk it out. And I had part of it in me. And I had that belt around my neck. You know, and I was going <gasps> like that. I had to tie it off, you know. And to tie it off, I had to tie my gas off. And uh blood running down my chest and dripping down on the floor. This gal broke in the door. You know, you take a toothpick or something, you make that bathroom door open. I didn't think you could. She came in there and saw that and screamed and left. And that was it. She ain't been, she ain't back yet. That was all that. That was too much for her. And I don't blame her. I'd have been gone long before she was. But I was in a terrible shape. And while I was in the hospital there in Fort Worth, I went to an AA meeting. And after... Everything else was gone. Everything. I was living with my poor mama. I thought, if there is an answer for me anywhere, it must lie in AA. That's the only place I've ever heard anything that might be of help to me. So I started going to AA a little bit. Out, what, what else old convicts call the street. I was on the street. I was going to AA on the outside. So, I was going for about a year and a half, and I was living out on my folks' place, and they run a dairy, and we was baling hay in the summertime, and I, a friend of mine was a plumber, and I, I, I was a plumber's helper, dug ditches for him in the wintertime, for about a year and a half there, and I couldn't stay sober. I wasn't shooting any dope, but I was getting drunk and taking Benzedrine, and I used to take that old stuff and hang out in them old honky-tonks, pick them old guitars, all that old kind of stuff. So after about a year and a half, I met a couple of fellas, and they ate my sponsor, Another fellow that I love so much and gradually others, but after about a year and a half I met these two fellows. And God was good to me. For some reason or another, there were about four or five things that happened just about at the same time. These guys started talking to me about the mechanics of the AA program. They started talking to me about working these steps. 
uh, right on down the line, the fourth step, and they emphasize doing it just exactly like the book says, writing out that fourth step, and taking it down and, and telling somebody about it, and doing all these things just exactly like the book said do them. I was, you know, the, the, the good book says something about being like a little child. Well, that's the way I was at that time, and I think this was, I'm so grateful for it. These fellows would tell me to do something, and I'd do it. And every day I was saying, what, 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 what are we going to do tomorrow night? Boy, I was scared, and I needed lots of help, and this was a glimmer. So they started telling me, well, I ought to do some praying. Well, you know, all that, I, I you know, uh, ain't, ain't that kind of silly? I don't feel, I don't feel like that's going to do very much good. They said, listen, boy, it don't make any difference whether you feel like it's going to do you any good or whether you think it's going to do you any good. God's love and God's existence and his action is not contingent on the way you feel or the way you think. You just do it. I could hear these words. I think this was God speaking to me through these men for the first time that I was aware of God, and I didn't know it then. I figured this out for my, with my little old feeble mind later on. But I was willing to do the things that these guys said because I identified with them, and I believed them. I could, I could hear the honesty and the sincerity and the love in these men's hearts and in their words. And so I started saying a little simple prayer each morning. I just asked God if, if he was willing, I wouldn't take a drink or a pill or a shot of dope that day. You know, amen. I didn't think it was going to do any good. We was going to lots of meetings. Uh, at one time in my life, I was going to 11 AA meetings and church services or church functions a week, 11 a week including the penitentiary meetings and this sort of thing. And I was going to a psychiatrist for an hour a week. Listen, I needed every tool I could get. I went to church and I went to AA and I went to psychiatrist. And, and I'd have gone to anybody else that could that would have said they could have helped me because I needed some help. Terrible bad and I needed it in a hurry. And God was good to me. After only about 10 days of this sort of intensive therapy and praying, companionship, love, listening to these men and making lots of meetings. After only about 10 days, a situation came up that I just knew was going to get me drunk, or I thought it was a situation. And I knew that if this situation was like I thought it was, I'd surely get drunk because I couldn't stand it. I was only 10 days dry. I was full of all the negative emotions that anybody can have, and you know, these are the painful ones. Helplessness. Desolation, loneliness, fear, boy, fear is panic-stricken. So, for some reason or another, I said a little prayer. You know, I'd said them old desperation prayers before. God, don't let me take this shot of dope, you know, and please get me off this dope and this sort of thing. But this morning, uh, it seemed like the words came to me. Now, I, you know, I, I don't want to make, you know, I don't want to sound like a Ouija board player. And I don't want to sound like a preacher, although I don't think there's anything wrong with sounding like a preacher. But, you know, they get paid to talk like this. <laughs> but it seemed to me like that some words were said to me. Not like I heard it on the radio, you know, but just like it just was said. In other words, I wasn't trying to con God. I wasn't strapping no story on him. I wasn't saying, now look here, God, if you do this, I'll do such and such. I just said that... uh No story on him. I wasn't saying, now look here, God, if you do this, I'll do such and such. I just said that, uh, 
If this situation is not like I know it has to be, I never will again doubt your existence. And I didn't form these words in my mind. They just came. They were just said. And I went on, and, and sure enough, this situation was not like I thought it was. And it took me about two hours to come down out of this panic-stricken state that I was in and kind of begin to level off. And when I did, I remembered that little prayer that I'd said. And boy, I'll tell you, it was a profound thing for me that day. Now, it you know, it doesn't sound like much. It uh, wasn't special. I didn't see any light. I didn't hear any bells. But I came to believe in an instant that there was a God and that he loved me and that he could and he would do something about my life if I'd turn it over to him a day at a time. Now, I believe this in the most profound way that anybody could believe it, as just because of that little simple thing. This had a tremendous effect on me, uh, a psychic change, a real deep change of attitude. You know, a uh, little kid lost in Sears and Roebuck on Saturday night, you know, one of these big department stores on, on Saturday night or on Christmas Eve or something, he lost. All these alien faces, you know, the fear and the panic, he ain't having fun. You know, he's in terrible shape. And, and suddenly he sees his mama and his daddy run. You know, his mama says, it's going to be all right. And, you know, the fear goes away. Uh, suddenly the world becomes a better place in which to live. I was a little kid, nine years old, when my daddy died. And a lot of psychotherapy and all this business. I found out this had a whole lot to do with uh Because I was me and because I reacted like I did, apparently... A lot of the things that came after my daddy's death had something to do with me being the kind of fellow I was. I remember, you know, I used to want to go fishing, you know. Uh, I needed somebody to fix my bicycle tire. And, and I had a, uh, there was a fellow who used to treat me awful bad when I was a little kid. And, you know, I'd be crying and, you know, I'd be wanting a daddy. And uh, I can imagine that, you know, you wake up at night with a nightmare and, and you, and Somebody done kicked you in the behind and called you a bad name and all this and that. And you're crying, you know. You know how these nightmares wake you up three or four o'clock in the morning. If after my daddy had been dead three or four years, if suddenly one night when I was feeling my worst, right after a nightmare, if he'd have walked in the door and said, come here, son, get up here in my lap. Everything's going to be, we're going to go fishing tomorrow, you know. We're going to fix your bicycle tire this dude that's been picking on you, that ain't going to happen no more. You know, you'd have a psychic change. You understand what I mean? You'd quit feeling so bad. You'd quit feeling fearful and insecure and inadequate and alone and without help and without hope and all these things. Things would get better. Well, this is the way, uh, this is the way I began to feel. I started feeling better because They'd been telling me about a guy that was younger, and he'd smile at you, and he loved you, and he understood, you know, and he'd take your hand if you'd ask him to, and he'd say, come on, son, you don't have to shoot that dope today. I'm going to hold your hand. And I came to believe that there was such a God. Gradually, as I've gone on in AA, I've, I've grown, thanks to AA and thanks to God, I've grown in my ability to, to discern God's action in my life and his love for us.
I think it's unending. I don't think God has any reservations whatsoever. I heard a powerful message out at Brownwood last month by a Baptist preacher. He's a wonderful fellow, and he talked about God's love and how it didn't make any difference how we felt about God, that he just went right on loving us anyway. I heard a beautiful story about a mother's love once that kind of puts me in mind of the way I understand God's love. That this boy and this mother, she cherished him. He was her only son, and and uh, she thought all the world of him. That he had him a gal friend, and this old gal was one of these possessive type women, and uh, she recognized a foe in this mother for this man's love, and she couldn't stand it. And he was uh, the kind of a fella that fell in love pretty hard, and he'd fallen in love with this girl. He asked her to marry him, and she kept him dangling, but finally she told him, if you'll go and kill your mother, cut her heart out, bring it to me, I'll marry you. Of course, he didn't want to do this. He loved his mother very deeply, but he was scared he'd lose this gal, and he just had to have her, he thought. So he went and killed his mother. He cut her heart out. He put it in a paper sack. And with all the enthusiasm of the, that he could muster, he went running down the gravel road, taking his heart to his lover. He thought, of course, everything would be all right. And in his enthusiasm, he stumbled and he fell on this gravel road. And he didn't get up right away. He was stunned and he was bleeding a little bit. And said a voice from out of that sack, full of all the love and concern that any mother has for a child, says, son, did you hurt yourself? Boy, that's something, you know. I think that's the way God loves us. I think he looks down and he sees us putting these needles in our arms, sucking on these wine jugs, doing all these bad things. And I think he thinks, son, are you hurting yourself? Why don't you let me help you? By God's grace, uh, AA taught me these things, and since that day that I had my spiritual experience, I haven't had any kind of a compulsion or obsession to use any kind of drug or take a drink or anything. It's gone, completely. That's a great blessing. There have been many others. I'm back in practice now. I can give them horses and them cows that dope, and I don't begrudge them a drop of it, you know. Man. <laughs> Man, I used to hate them dogs when I had to split down on that dope, you know. Some old dog with a broken leg and I'd have to give him some of that dope. I'd hate that bugger. <laughs> I'm making a good living. I guess I'm making as much or more than I ever made before, but it doesn't seem quite as important. I joined an Episcopal church. The rector asked me to be his Sunday school superintendent. I, you know, I ain't never been to Sunday school in my life. I don't know nothing about no Sunday school. He said, well, that's good. We ain't got no false notions we'll have to get rid of. <laughs> so he put me in his Sunday school class, and I did that, you know, for a year. I was sorry. I wasn't no good for a Sunday school superintendent. But, boy, you know, uh, 
I, I was sure grateful for it. I thought, that, you know, there ain't too many dope fiend Sunday school superintendents running around. <laughs> I thought it was a tremendous privilege. He took me up to Chicago one time. We had a bishop and 20 or 30 priests and a bunch of key laymen up there from the Diocese of Chicago. They were trying to figure out how to pep up their church roles. We went up there to try to tell, there I was, you know, an old dope fiend, Texas Aggie from Texas, dog doctor, up there trying to tell that bishop how to run his church there in Chicago. <laughs> and boy, that, you know, they say the AA program changes people. Well, I had to have a change. I had to have a change. And that's a change, you know. Uh, I'm supposed to be out there in the hometown picking on the guitar and I'm up there talking to a bishop. I had another little blessing, and Marge mentioned it. You know, we come in to AA, and our nerves are bad, and our emotions are stripped raw. And we need to be loved, and we need to feel like we're worthy of being loved, and we need somebody to love. I tried to get my marriage put back together. I thought God's will must include me being back with my family. I went with this gal, and I dated her, and all, you, you know, but... uh. I'd been awful hard on that gal. Uh, you step around on one of them and, and, and strum on their head enough and stay out all night enough and do all the terrible things. She just wasn't too glad to see me and she wasn't too interested in this AA program and it, she got along a whole lot better without me anyway. And she wished that there was just uh, one thing that I could give, two things I could give her. And that was plenty of room and lots of money. You know, it was one of them deals. Well, that didn't work out for me, and apparently it was God's will that it didn't. I don't know how, you know, that could be, but apparently, they say judge it by the fruit. Well, I went on stage sober, and, and I was talking about this kid that had this terrible dependency on this gal. He fell in love, you know. I was the same way. Man, I'd go out with a gal, I'd fall in love. I'd fall in love in a minute, and I had many, many romantic, tragic, uh, you know, true, true story, uh, it wouldn't be nothing. I, I was really one of these, one of them cliffhangers. About every two or three months, you know, I, somebody leave me hanging on a cliff the way they'd go. <laughs> and I thought I was gonna die if I didn't find me a wife. Well, the Lord knew better. He knew I wasn't no fit husband for nobody. In the state of mind, in the situation I was in. So he saw to it that I stayed single. I write it four years in AA, and that's hard, or it was hard for me. You know, you can't reconcile God's will with some of these impulses you have as a single man. It was hard. <laughs> I don't know when you pray, before or after, you know. <laughs> but he, he had mercy on me, and... uh just about a little over six months ago, and you, you'll see her this evening. He sent me a little old gal, you know. Looks like ice cream, peach ice cream cone with a white powder puff stuck up on top of her head. You know, one of these little old pink, one of these little old white kittens with a pink ribbon, you know, and they put perfect, y'all might, might not know, but I, uh, Ellen sees some of these things. You know, they're fun to hold and pet and smell of and, and you know, just real lovely and, and cuddly. Came from a 
big family there in Houston, you know, her, her papa's a member of the vestry, old, real imposing church and all this business, you know. You know, three or four or five years ago, a little old gal like that wouldn't even look at me. I was something green, you know, had legs coming out each side, you know. <laughs> I lived under a rock. I'd come up and look around, take a shot, and run back under <laughs> That's the way I felt. I really did feel that way. I don't feel that way anymore. Of course, I don't feel like I'm any shining knight in armor. Of course, she ain't no, you know. She, she wasn't Snow White, and you know. But I feel like she was, and I cherish her very deeply. I feel like the Lord gave me an opportunity to be a husband. And I feel like she's a, just a real precious gift. And I try to treat her that way. I never had a relationship with a gal for any length of time before I didn't get all my head all raggedy and whale the daylights out of her for one reason or another. You know, some of them needed it, but it wasn't, <laughs> but it wasn't my place to do it. God being my helper, I'll never lay a hand on this little gal. I love her with all my heart. She loves me. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Of course, there have been many other privileges and blessings. The greatest one that can come to any man. I know this. The greatest blessing that can come to any man. To know that there is a God and that he loves you. And I know that today. I know that there's a God and he loves me. And as long as I'll try a day at a time, the best I can, he ain't going to let nothing come along that me and him can't handle together. And I know that. That's the greatest blessing that I think anybody could possibly have. And of course, along with this goes my sobriety. And I'm so grateful for it. I'm so grateful that you folks let me come out here today. I appreciate it so much. This is a, this is a real honor and a real privilege for me. It really is. I appreciate it so much. I hope to be with all of you again one of these days. I thank you for being so patient. I know you want a cigarette, because I do. God bless each and every one of you. Thank you very much.